Tonight I'd like to go back to basics, which feels important to do periodically. In Buddhist psychology, it is taught that there are six things in the world, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical perceptions in the body, and then mental perceptions, which include feelings and thoughts and intuitions. The mind is seen as a sixth sense door. Anybody have anything else in their world? Please raise your hand. <laughs> so these are the six flavors or colors of experience that make up all of life. In Buddhist psychology, it's also taught that with these six sense experiences, there arises a quality called consciousness, that dimension of our being, and it's all really very mysterious, that's defined as the knowing faculty. Consciousness knows or receives experience. So there's sight and the knowing of it. Sound and the knowing of it. Because if you have a, a dead body, there can be sound and the little eardrum moves and so forth. But there isn't the consciousness to receive it, to know it. So now there are two things. There are the six sense experiences and the consciousness which knows them. Then there's one more central piece to this description of our experience in Buddhist psychology. And that is between the sight and the knowing of it, the sound and the knowing of it, the smell or taste or thought or perception and the knowing of it, between those two is a whole array of qualities called mental qualities or mental factors. They're aspects of the mind and heart that arise with each experience and determine our relationship to it. So sight can come, or a sound may arise, or a thought, or a sensation, or taste. And we know it, and then with that knowing, we might meet it with awareness, or with love, or with anger, or with fear, or with grasping, or with uh, kindness. There are dozens and dozens of mental qualities that arise together with experience that determine our relationship. And about half of them are in the category of those that cause difficulty and suffering. You probably have recognized those in yourself. And another half are in the category that lead to freedom, ease, peace, compassion with things. The ones that create suffering are fundamentally contractions of different kinds. You could call these mental qualities also moods. And our moods determine our relationship to life, our liberation or our fear and bondage. You know how it is. You fall in love, and when you're really in that state of being in love, which some people call delusional, but it's <laughs> nevertheless, as delusions go, you know, pretty good. Um, get in a little car accident, your fender gets dented by somebody, you don't, doesn't matter so much, it's okay, you're in such a good mood, we'll work it out, right? Doesn't matter, no problem. But then you can get up in a different mood, different day, and be grumpy or angry, and it doesn't matter who walks in the door or what they say, something is wrong with them, you know. And the moods, at grief or longing or love, a mood that's trusting or a mood that's frightened, all these different qualities come, humor or depression, it's like the uh, optimist who wakes up and says, good morning, God, and the pessimist who wakes up and says, good God, morning. Right? <laughs> it's the same experience, but the mood somehow changes it. And when you notice, they keep changing, don't they? 
Anybody have a mood that stays? <laughs> so a question that arises is, as we are to become wiser and freer, to find this freedom that is our true nature, our Buddha nature, is how do we relate to them? To see them, to understand them, do we get lost, identified, caught up? Or is there a way to be at peace with all these changing moods that come along with the various inevitable sights and sounds and tastes and smells and so forth? So what I want to talk about tonight is how to work with these in a pretty traditional way. And I'm doing it because it's so valuable to new students. And for those of you who've practiced for a while and heard these teachings as old students, I ask for your indulgence and your beginner's mind because it is so helpful to hear it if you're new. There are particularly strong moods that come commonly as one tries to meditate or quiet down or open up. And they come, if you will, as clouds or obscurations or confusions in the space of mind that's just present and clear and content. It's as if our true nature is quite spacious, but then a mood will come, whether it's fear or anger, whatever it happens to be, and then we're off and running with it, as if it's who we really are. They're actually kind of mysterious and quite impersonal. They're like the weather. You know, it's been kind of cool this year. And then we get our rainstorms and the sun comes in between, the wind comes and it dies down and so forth. And we don't have a lot of, we don't have any control over it whatsoever. It just comes. It's due to certain conditions. It seems like these moods are also due to conditions. They're conditioned. They're like the weather or sometimes they feel more like ads on the radio or television. You know, you don't want them there, but you're interested in the show, and then they just come and they kind of take over. Right? And sometimes the ads seem like they're more real than the show. You know? Somebody asked the great Indian sage Ramakrishna why there was evil in the world, and he answered, to thicken the plot, make it more interesting. So how do we understand especially the difficult moods as they arise in these difficult states? How do we work with them in a meditative way? The basis for the liberation that is possible through meditation or through uh, a deep understanding of this body and mind is that we can come to rest in the still point. That's T.S. Eliot's word for it. We can come to rest in the central way within which moods arise and we avoid two extremes. We neither suppress them, because if you suppress the moods, you know, they just come out somewhere else. You know they will, as an illness or when you're not looking in some bitchy comment or some nasty, you know, it's true. They will. So if you suppress them, it's not terribly good. It makes you sick or someone else sick. Um, that's one extreme. The other extreme is to act them out. And if you act out all the different feelings that come, you end up in San Quentin for the most part <laughs> because that's the way minds are, aren't they? I mean, really, look at it, honestly. It's funny, but it's true. It happens that there is a middle ground between suppressing stuff and necessarily acting on every feeling and mood that comes, which is the ground of understanding, of awareness and compassion. And this is the place between grasping and wanting or pushing the world away, a place of rest which gives authentic strength and stillness and, and understanding <coughs> and loving kindness. It brings that out in us. Now here are the traditional examples that are used in the Buddhist teachings because they're so common as you just sit and try to find this place of stillness and openness of heart in oneself. The first common example of strong energy is 
excuse me, is the wanting mind, wanting something. And usually we believe it, we're identified with it, we want this. And it feels like we're small and separate and if we get that and we get a little more, then we'll be bigger, fuller or something. It comes along and it's kind of like, I like to call it the if only mind. And it taps you on the shoulder and it says, wherever you are, we've got something better, right? What you have is not enough. And if you could only get this, a little more money, you know, or the right person in relationship, or the right place to live, or a different job, or maybe, I mean, you just get, maybe just it's some, a cappuccino, a latte, you know, it could be small things. But if you get this, then you'll be happy. You're not happy now, this will make you happy. And what it often is, is certain pleasure, or certain happiness, or security comes from it. But as soon as you get it, do you know what happens? Then it taps you and says, you thought that was good. How about this? The next one comes because it becomes a habit. And what it means is that we can't be where we are because it's always fooling us and saying something else is going to make it for us. It also blinds us. As long as we're wanting, we can't see what's in front of us. The old Hindu saying is that when a pickpocket meets a saint, they see only what's in the saint's pockets. They don't see the beauty of that being. Oscar Wilde put it this way. He said, I can resist anything except temptation. Right? Our culture is the culture of desire. I mean, we have spent trillions of dollars, not just billions, trillions, honing our psychology. The best psychologists in America are all hired by big corporations to create advertising and things like that, you know, so that you will want more. It is. It's how it works. And then we sell it to the rest of the world as best we can as well. And the idea is that if you get more and more and more and more, want more and more and more and keep getting more, you'll be happy. Right? So if you have the right house and the right um, sport utility vehicle, you know, and you go and you play a good game of tennis and then you soak in your hot tub and then you have a great gourmet dinner and a beautiful video to watch and a night of making love and then you get up in the morning and you get up really early and you go to the gym and then you jog and then you get in your sport utility vehicle and go to the right job and make some money and so forth. And if you do enough of that, you'll be really happy. Whereas what will actually happen is you'll get really tired. <laughs> Gotta keep going. So how to work with the if-only mind? And I'm not saying desire is bad. It's simply understanding it so we're not at its mercy because it's very strong. Longing, hoping, wanting. One image to use is Ulysses on his boat when he comes to the sirens. He really wants to hear the song of the sirens, but he asks them to please tie him. To tie. He asks his sailors to please tie him to the mast. Okay. There's some way in which we need to find a ground in our being that can know the siren call of desire and understand it for what it is so that we can choose. Is this a wise one or not? But it's very seductive. I just came down from this six-week retreat, which is people are getting really still. It's been a month now and very open and shining and this innocence in their faces. It's quite beautiful. One of the phenomena that happen on retreats we call the Vipassana romance. Because you can be sitting there, just yeah. sitting quietly, minding your own business. No one speaks, right, on the silent retreats. But then you notice somebody over there that's kind of interesting. And then you're just trying to be with your breath and your sensations. And all of a sudden, all the fantasies start happening. Well, suppose I talk to him or her, you know. Maybe afterward we meet and then we go off and we meditate together or, you know, how it goes, <laughs> the rest of the fantasy. And pretty soon you're sitting there and you're just filled with it, you know, and you're going to build a life together and build a home you want And if you really play it out, there's marriage, kids, probably, you know, divorce, I mean, the whole thing, right? And then you realize that you're just sitting there and you don't know this person, right? And even, in fact, when you meet them at the end, they're not at all who you thought they were. 
So what to do with this mind that creates all these imaginary worlds that take us away from the person in front of us, from the sunset, from the experience of being alive? My teacher Ajahn Chah talked about the mind as being like a kid that's coming and saying, I want candy. Can we go see the elephants? I want to go to the circus. And you know, you don't hate the kid or say you shouldn't. You just, it's a kid. It sort of, it does what it does. So a few things to do in the way to work with it. The first is to accept this. We're not trying to fight it. It's part of our human nature. As if one could bow to it and say, oh, there's a good example of desire. Far out. Look at that one. All right? and feel how much it actually is in your life. You want to study these energies. How much desire is there in a day for you or in a week? Begin to feel, is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? What's it, what's, how does it operate within your life? So there's a kind of acceptance. Oh, here you are again. I'm interested. You get interested in it. It's like Mae West who said, when forced to choose between evils, I always pick the one I haven't tried yet. Right? So you have a little humor about it. All right, here's another desire. This one wants that. And you actually let yourself experience, feel what this human, common human experience does. Then second, with mindfulness or awareness, this kind of respectful attention, you can begin to name it as you bow to it. Oh, there's the wanting mind or longing just another form of desire, or grasping or desire, and feel it. Center yourself. What does it feel like in the body? Is the mind small or large, tight or easy? Is it tense? Is it painful or pleasant? How does it begin? What does it do when it comes? How does it end? Actually let it play itself out, not just once, but a few times. And in a sense, learn not to be so afraid of hunger because the world runs on this hunger for things or experiences or whatever this wanting mind is. Actually, there's a fine book in the bookstore um, written by Janine Roth about eating disorders and eating, which she's entitled Feeding the Hungry Heart. Because a lot of times what we want, whether it's food or other things, is really not what we most deeply long for. And we substitute things. So here it's not to be afraid of it and say, instead of immediately trying to feel it, let me feel what it's like and see if I can sit in its presence, like sitting in the presence of some amazing creature. And name it. Oh, wanting, desire, longing, longing. And hold it with a sense of tenderness and openness. So one makes friends with it, if you will, accepts it, begins to name it and notice what it does. And then if it's very strong, it may come and go, and you kind of notice it has its life. If it's very strong, one needs to soften the heart and the body and somehow shift your identity as you experience it, maybe with a simple question. Is this who I am? Are you really this desire? And somehow remember that it's only a cloud that it's a certain mood or state, and it feels very real. But ask your heart, is this real? Will this do this? Is this true? William Blake said, those who enter the gates of heaven are not those who have no passions or who have curbed the passions, but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. Because there might be skillful desire desire to serve, desire to care for this body, desire to awaken all kinds of skillful desire, desire connected with compassion or caring for another. But then there are desires that get us in a lot of trouble, not because desire is bad, but because we get lost in them. And we believe this story. The whole story comes on the screen. Yes, believe me. Well, I don't know, thank you. I'm going to watch for a little bit and feel it and see what you are. So one sits and practices and lets these experiences come and fill us, mind, story, bodies, and bow to them, name them, soften in the heart, say, okay, show me your stuff. You know, better than Madison Avenue. Give me the whole thing. And you know what happens after a while? If you 
make this spaciousness in the heart and that still point, at some point it ends. Because everything does, you know. And you say, wow, that was a big storm of desire, wasn't it? And there you are, and there's this sense of some freedom that starts to come that we're not, that's not who we are, most fundamentally. Now, it's opposite from the wanting mind, the cloud or the contraction that comes is aversion and anger. It's the mind or the heart that wants to push things away. Instead of wanting, it's the don't, I don't want this. And the principles are pretty much the same because this aversion can come in many forms as fear, as anger, or hatred, as judgment, the judging mind. To accept it with some humor. And I remember when I was really angry in the forest monastery and my teacher said, you know, go wrap yourself up in your robes sit in your little hot, and it was the hot season, it was really hot, a little tin roof, put your robes on, close the windows, you're going to be angry, be angry, go in there and do it right, you know, and learn about it. So, and he was laughing the whole time, he said, and you, you go see, you like anger, you check it out, right? <laughs> or the judging mind comes, you're no good, you never do it right, you know the judging mind? Not they're no good, we know that, but you're no good, especially it judges you, right? Right. And it's actually very impersonal. You can kind of bow to it. Oh, there's the judging mind, you know. But then it keeps coming back. If you need to, you can count it. How many judgments in one meditation period? <laughs> Sitting here, the breath's going in and out. Someone comes in the door hearing, oh, I wish people wouldn't come in late. Oops, 13, right? <laughs> oh, but now it's getting quieter. I like that quiet. Oh, 14. <laughs> right, back to the breath. Hey, I'm doing pretty good counting these judgments, aren't I? Oh, 15, right? A little pride in there. And you just sort of notice each one, each evaluation. Or you notice whose voice it is. You're sitting there and the judgment comes. And if you pay attention, it will be generally a familiar voice. Usually someone related to you and someone who was larger than you at some time in the past. And then you can say, and it's amazing, they could have died or they're not here, but they have opinions about how you should meditate, you know, or how you should dress, or how you should brush your teeth, or what kind of toothpaste you should use, and they're not even here. They, they may be dead, but there they are saying, no, no, you've got to clean up and do that, and you're not doing it. You guys, you can bow. Oh, thank you, you know, thanks, Ted. Right, I appreciate it. Thank you, Maria. You know, I'm glad to hear you're still doing your job, right? You know, and there comes some sense of humor because, you see, it's just programmed in like a tape. It's so impersonal. So some sense of humor and accepting and a naming of it, irritation, aversion, fear. And as you name it, fear comes and you feel it in your body, the breath stops. What does it do? You know, the hands get cool, and you bow to it, and you name fear, 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 and you let yourself sit with it rather than running away, or anger, anger. You allow it there. And if you do, then one of three things will happen. After a time, it will either go away, or it will stay the same, or it will get worse, right? And that's not your job. Your job is to name it and feel what it does, and maybe fear, fear, oh man, I got through that, cool, this is great, I like this mindfulness. Another time, fear, fear, I kind of know fear a little bit, oh, fear, fear, oh, fear, terror, terror, maybe it gets worse, terror, terror, you name that, and you let that come and go, and finally you've made your peace a little bit even in the face of terror. Accept it, note it, soften in some way, Touch it with some understanding. I mean, there's so much judgment in us. This is from Rumi hundreds of years ago. Four Indians enter the mosque and begin the prostrations, deep, sincere praying. But a priest walked by, and one of them, without thinking, says, Oh, are you going to give the call to prayers now? Is it time? And the second one, under his breath, says, You spoke. Now your prayers are invalid. You're supposed to be silent. And the third one says, Uncle, don't scold him. You've done the same thing. Correct yourself. And the fourth one says out loud, Praise Allah, I haven't made the mistake of these three. 
I mean, it's amazing what the mind will do. And so you look at it with some humor and some ease, and you say, there it is, there's the judging mind. But then it gets harder. How about aversion and hatred? <coughs> How do we receive it? How do we touch it? We can name it, open to it. This is a, a passage that was given to me by someone on a retreat who had difficulty doing walking meditation. And I said, well, since you have difficulty with it and you get bored or restless, whatever, rather than saying you shouldn't do it, I have a suggestion, why don't you walk all morning or all day and see what happens? Because you're here to learn something. Dear Jack, long walking meditation all morning, assignment completed, thank you. Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might discover many reasons why I've been so resistant to it, but circumstances taught me something else. I chose to walk in the lower walking room because it's small, beautiful, usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, wearing noisy boots. <laughs> well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This madman pounded his way through an hour and a half nonstop, except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. I tried loving-kindness meditation. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. <laughs> I stood there noting, hate, hating, hating. Later, I stood in the middle of the room and simply wept, tears, tears. Then I got to the point where I realized whatever problem he had was his, not mine. And after that, I got quiet, and he was just sound. And so I walked and breathed, and he paced and pounded, and pretty soon it was all the same to me. His noise, my breath, the movement of my body, and after an hour and a half, he left. And then it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not as much better as I would have expected. <laughs> Mostly just different. Thank you. So the learning of being with these things, because we have so many ideas. We get angry because we've been hurt. And then we need to learn how to stay with that pain and the grief that's there or the loss, or we get angry because we're afraid. We need to learn to stay with the fear, both of those with compassion. The pain or the grief or the fear requires a compassionate heart for ourselves. Or we get angry because we think how that person or those people should be, and it feels like we really know. It's like Gore Vidal who wrote, there is no human problem that could not be solved if people would simply do as I advise. Right? <laughs> and we feel that way somehow inside, that we, if we were in charge somehow. So to work with it requires acceptance and acknowledgement of these energies, and they're strong, they take practice. And a softening, where we feel the hardness of the heart, the unforgivingness because of the pain or the fear or the loss, or the grief, or the suffering, you know that's there. And yet we all have pain, and grief, and loss, and suffering, and almost nothing is going to make a life that doesn't have it. Nothing will. The softening of the hardness of the heart, so that we are aware with some tenderness, and some compassion, and some forgiveness, starting primarily with ourselves, And then it begins to lose its power. Other strong energies, similar ones, in this particular list from the Buddha, there comes the cloud of dullness, sleepiness, laziness. I don't actually believe people are lazy. When I've talked to people who've seemed to believe themselves to be lazy, usually what I find is that they're frightened, that they're too afraid to actually do what their heart wants to do, they're too scared to do it, so they don't do it. You know what I mean? But we get dull or so-called lazy or sleep. I mean, sleep's this most amazing thing. Here we go, unconscious part of the day. It's quite far out. Nobody knows why. I mean, we need it. We love it. Imagine not having it. 
But on this planet, you get waking and you get sleeping for some strange, mysterious reason. And it's funny, you know, because I remember being in monasteries in Burma where all these people were sitting in meditation. And in the afternoon especially, I'd look around and it was like those little yellow ducks that you put in the cup. One monk would be doing this, and then he'd sort of straighten up, and the next monk would do it next to him, and so forth. You know, I thought the monks in Burma were better than that. <laughs> so you want some humor about it. It's very impersonal. And you notice it, and there you sit, and you're trying to be aware, or you're doing whatever in your life, and you're trying to be aware, and you get sleepy. And it'll come for different reasons. The main reason it comes when you're, you know, trying to do some meditation, do you know why? Because you're tired. Your body says, hey, remember me? You've been running me around. And now you sat down, thanks God. You know, I can sit here and it just wants a little rest. It's like a signal. Okay, remember. Sometimes it comes also because we're not used to being quiet. We have such a high stimulus society that when we get quiet, it says, oh, it's quiet, it must be bedtime. Right? It puts itself to sleep. And sometimes it comes as a kind of resistance. We start to get quiet and find ourselves sleeping. We're not so tired, but it's like the mind, there's something that's hard to feel, or grief, or longing, or pain, something, and the mind will kind of swoon and put itself to sleep. So what do you do? My teacher, as I'm sure most of you heard, told me to go sit on the edge of the well, that that would help with my sleepiness, because then I could be more aware of it so I didn't fall all the way down in the well. But basically, you pay attention. You bow to it, sleepiness. Oh, this is interesting. Everybody has gets sleepy. It's not a bad thing. Or dullness or laziness. Am I afraid? What is it like in the body? Is this laziness really fear? And what would it mean to hold that with compassion? and then move from that to some other state. Or the body needs rest, could I give it rest? Could I allow that cloud to come in, be respected and pass, and then the next thing? Sometimes it's also a signal maybe not to sit, to take a walk, to get up, to move, to need a bit more energy. It's really to be wise about energies that come, the different moods. What does this one ask of me? First, to be with it. Don't react immediately to any of them. But then as you listen, to know, oh, this one says, I really need to lie down and rest. Or this one, oh, this is just my usual sleepiness. I can sit with this, and then the clouds clear, and the next thing comes. The same with its opposite. Just like there's the opposite of wanting is the aversion pushing away. The opposite of sleepiness is the clouds of restlessness that come, agitation. And what to do? The first, again, bow to it, accept it. Because if you can't sit with your own restlessness, <coughs> or your loneliness, or your boredom, you're in trouble. The minute it comes, you'll open the refrigerator, mm -hmm. you know, or turn on the TV, or call somebody, or, you know, do the thousand distracting things, because you can't be alone with yourself. So if someone says, I'm bored in meditation, I'm restless, I say, great, sit there and be bored. Really learn about boredom, or loneliness, or restlessness itself. And there are all these meditation states, the rolling up the mat stage in one, you know, ancient text. It just comes, you say, I don't want to be where I am anymore. So what do you do? You bow to it, you feel it, you name it, restless, restless. Oh, if only I could be somewhere else, how soon will the meditation, or how soon will this job, or how soon will cleaning up after this child, you know that state, I can't do it. When, when's the next thing coming? This is too much for me. It's like that cartoon I like so much of the nomads on the camels, you know, the father on one camel and the mother on the second camel and then the children behind. The father's turning back to talk to the children and he says, will you stop asking if we're almost there? We're nomads for crying out loud. Right? And in meditation, you know, you're waiting, is the time up? I can't wait till he rings the bell, you know. Oh, 
Now I'm happy. Right? I wasn't happy, but now I'm happy. So in this, you name it, you bow to it, and you feel it. Restless, restless, and feel what it does in the body, the images and thoughts of the mind, a willingness to find that center, to rest in the spacious heart with that. But what if it's really strong? I like to talk about this. Suppose you just think, I can't stand it, the sleepiness or the anger or the fear or the restlessness. What should you do? Die. You sit here and you say, okay, take me. I'll be the first person at Spirit Rock to die of restlessness. Do it. You know, I feel like I'm going to die. Might as well finish the job. Right? And the minute that you're willing to do that, something changes. Because most of the difficulty with these different moods and states is not the state, but it's our resistance to them. And the minute you say, okay, take me, somehow it gets, it gets easier. It's the fear of it that's the problem. You soften, you calm, you allow it. The same for another strong energy, which is the cloud of doubt. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't do this. Everybody else looks like they're meditating, or everybody else looks like their spiritual practice is working. Not mine, you know. Doubt about oneself, doubt about how one's doing it. And of course, there are questions one needs to ask sometimes. But do you know, the doubting mind is probably the worst of all these different moods. When you really doubt yourself, it's so painful. Each one of them is a different form of this kind of suffering. Now, you can't say, I'm not going to doubt, you know, because it's natural, it's human. Just like I'm not going to be restless or sleepy, or I'm not going to feel wanting and so forth. They're part of the energies of life. Well, what should I do with it? How do I work with doubt? Ajahn Chah, my teacher, said, you're asking about the horse and you're riding on it, right? Pay attention to right where you are. Doubting is natural. So you name it, oh, doubting doubting, and you feel, I can't do it, I'm too young, I'm too old, I can't do this project, I can't fulfill this. You feel the doubting mind in, in the mind and in the heart and in the body for what it is, and you rest there. Oh, doubting, that's a really good example of doubt. That's simple. You bow to it. It's like the old Sufi who was wise and open-minded and when he died, finally, in the fullness of time, he went and appeared before the gates of heaven. And the angel, at the guardian at the gate, said, Go no further, O mortal, until you prove your worthiness to enter into this paradise. And the Sufi looked and said, Wait a second, can you prove to me that this is a real heaven and not just the fanciful image of my disordered mind as I'm undergoing the death process, questioning it to the last. And before the angel could answer, the voices from inside yelled out, let him in, he's one of us. <laughs> there is different kinds of doubt. There are the little doubts. I'm not good, self-judgment, I can't do it. You know those kind of small doubts. And then there's something called the great doubt. The doubt that's really honorable, that says, what is this? They speak of freedom. They speak of, you know, this great heart of compassion. Is it true? Is it possible for each one of us, for me too? What does this mean to love, to be open? So in all of these, and these are really just the examples, there's the allowing of the energy, the seeing what happens to it. Let it do its dance, its whole process. And as we do, we start to see the patterns of life that come and go from the place of this still point, of this rest. And they become our teachers. Manure for Bodhi, Suzuki Roshi called it. You know, manure for enlightenment. These are the things that teach <coughs> compassion. These are the energies that teach that it's possible to be free. And in each of these clouds is also hidden seeds. They have a deeper nature of something that's radiant and beautiful within us. For example, the wanting mind, that longing. We all have. I mean, Rumi's the poet of longing. 10,000 poems of longing. Beautiful poems. My teacher in 
India, Nisargadatta Maharaj, said, desire is not the problem for you. The problem is you don't desire enough. You only want small things. Why not want the whole enchilada, or I guess, <laughs> I think he probably would have said the whole, what is it, the whole japati, right? We've got to get our, get our metaphors correct. Why not want eternal life, absolute fulfillment, freedom and peace? You only want these little things. You don't desire enough that the longing that we have isn't for this person or that thing. They become the vehicle for this longing to be at whole, to be complete, to be connected, which we are fundamentally. And it doesn't get filled by the small things, but by that discovery of the wholeness that's under there in those moments when the longing stops and we feel that we are everything. It's there to be known. Not through desire, but desire takes us to it. So there's something really key in it. In anger, it's the same thing. You know, I mean, it can be a certain strength that we use, but mostly you'll notice it causes a lot of suffering. There can be moments when it's helpful. But underneath it, if we look and sense, there is a wish to find strength or power or will, you know, in the face of injustice or something that's wrong, where we or another have been hurt or feared or, or afraid of something. And in this, there is a kind of strength. We want the strength to make the world beautiful and right and clear for justice, a certain integrity. And anger is usually the wrong way to go about it. If you pay attention, it can become more often than not destructive. But in its strength and clarity, there's something deeper that we touch, which is our own inherent strength and our own inherent integrity. Sleepiness, too. It comes, you think, well, this is kind of an energy not so helpful in one's life. But I think when we're sleepy, it's a seeking of peace you know, of rest that's part of the rhythm. We've forgotten we have a 24-hour culture. You can do anything at any time, no 24-hour trading online, move your stocks around, 24-hour banking, 24-hour shopping, 24-hour, my God. Sleep says, you know, breathe in, breathe out, a little space between the breaths, please. All the other you know, furry mammals know that there are times when one rests. Our culture is forgetting it. In certain Buddhist traditions, sleep is respected. It's called the poor man's nirvana. You know, it's that, it's that peace that we love. I mean, think about how it is when you finally snuggle into bed, you know, and can let go of your identity for a while. You don't have to be yourself for six or eight hours. You don't have to solve problems and do things and fight the good fight and care for all these people. What a pleasure it is to have a good night's sleep. It's wonderful. There's a letting go, a peace. And if you study these things in the kind of Eastern way, there are all these levels of sleep. There's a, there's a text that speaks about eight kinds of yogic swoons, eight, eight different levels of letting go and peaceful states inside and so forth. It's actually quite wonderful. But what it does is it invites us to realize that we do seek peace. That there's some part of us that seeks to find that place in the center which neither grasps nor rejects a single thing, which fears nothing, which is still and at peace in this world. Because that's who we are in the end. Zen Master Ryokan. He says, For more than 70 years, I've been making myself dizzy observing the ways of men. You know how it is with men. Finally, I've abandoned trying to penetrate men's good and bad actions. All this coming and going, judging here and there is a sign of weakness. And now, the great way with capitals. I braid spring flowers into a ball. The future, 
the Dharma, the teachings, enlightenment. If a visitor brings such questions, I have only the tranquility of my hermitage to offer in answer. All these things and what he offers is just now, this moment. And it's so beautiful when we find that in ourselves or we meet that for a moment in another, all this commotion, and someone says, hello, are you there? Just this moment. And it's, it's really what we long for, this place of centeredness. Fear. There's the fear of physical danger. It's a good sign. We need to know it and have it operate for us. But the other kinds of fears, you know the ones like I usually use that line from Mark Twain where he said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. You know, those kind of fears. Um, or the fears of what's happening in us as we age or experiences happen in meditation or experiences happen in our relationship and we get afraid. And it's not the ones we're in danger. Usually the fear is the envelope of what we know. And it's almost like a membrane that if it had a sign on it, when we get to that membrane, the sign would say, about to grow like it or not, about to grow. It's actually a symbol, if we can be at peace with our fear, that something new, something bigger than this small sense of self that we've constructed is about to happen. And it may be painful or pleasant or amazing or difficult, but we can grow in all those ways. Even pride which comes, you name it, pride, pride, you know puffing up ourself, the small self, trying to impress someone or impress ourselves and so forth. There's actually something beautiful behind it all, which is the sense that we want to be valuable and noble and seen as something that also brings beauty or something important in this world. Why not do it right? Why not be a Buddha? If you're going to be proud, do it properly, you know? <laughs> So in all these things, there's first the invitation to find freedom in their midst, which we can do, and then to discover that the longings underneath them are to express something truer and deeper in ourselves. Our integrity, our strength, our love of justice, our wholeness, the peacefulness that is there, who we are. The heart of greatness. To sit, said one Chinese Zen master, in unmoving suchness. And if desire and fear arise, remember they are not who we are. Hold to nothing, none of these states, let them come and go, and you will find what is true. They're the play of energy, joy, fear, strength, anger, longing, sorrow. And some people think that as you do spiritual practice, life becomes duller, you know, and you become more quiet and passive in some way. Um, but it's not like that, as best as I can see. You actually become more alive as you live in the reality of the present. It's more colors and more textures because you're there for it rather than frightened and grasping and hoping and imagining. We're actually here for this person, and this one, and this step, and this day of thunderclouds, and then blue sky again, and the cool air, and the plum blossoms. And in this, there's a lightness of heart that grows, and a freedom, and a sensitivity. Like it says in the Tao, rushing into action, you fail. Trying to grasp things, you lose them. Forcing a project to completion, you ruin what was almost ripe. Therefore, the master takes action by letting things take their course. She remains as calm at the end as in the beginning. She grasps nothing and thus has nothing to lose. 
What she desires is to unlearn. She simply reminds people of who they have always been. She cares for nothing but the Tao, the way, the Dharma, the flow. And because she cares for nothing but the Tao, she cares for all things. Our nature is to breathe, to expand and contract. Small self, big self, fears and wanting come. Love and openness arise, and other fears or restless may arise again. These are the moods and the states. It's possible to find freedom in the midst of them all, and it's wonderful to do so. The more that we understand it, the happier we become. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.